May we stand together for prayer. Our Father, for the preparation and for the response and for the joy and for the spiritual singing, we do thank Thee. We thank You, Lord, that Jesus is our song. And help us to be joyful Christians. Bless this service. Grant that every vacuum in every heart may be filled with gospel fruit tonight. Give us assurance. Give us minds that are open to the truth. Grant that we may be divorced from the world with all of its gadgets and all of its play toys. And help us, Lord, to take a look through time into eternity tonight as this message is brought in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever the Lord says do, usually man does not do. For instance, Jesus said in the great message that he brought to Christians, now you don't tell lost people this because that's certainly not uh, their uh, cup of life. He said to Christians, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the thieves can't get to them. Moth and rust can't rust. Put them in the big bank. Put them in the bank that won't bust. And yet, man hasn't done it. I begin the message tonight by telling you about people that were Canaan bound, a type of the people of God. They have experienced a growth of from 70 to 3 million plus, but they wound up slaves in Egypt's land where most people live today. Slaves of tradition, religion, sin, and pleasure. After 430 years, a deliverer, an ex-convict, showed up. But he graduated at the Burning Bush Seminary, gripped the hand of I am, and marched into the office of Pharaoh and said, you can let him go now. And had it not been for the presence of the I am, Moses would have never walked out of his office alive. No doubt the big, strong, armed bodyguards were all around. Kings and pharaohs lived in constant fear of assassination or destruction or an attack. And it's about that bad for presidents in America now. Oh, we've had a flock of them killed, haven't we? You think of the presidents that have been assassinated in the history of our country. We talk about civilization. It's become sinfulization. But I give you two words that expresses the victory of three men. Before I'm through with the message, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up his lucrative future. He gave up his political ambition. He gave up his opportunity to become one of the greatest leaders, to become the leader of three million plus slaves. And he led them across the Red Sea, dry shod, across the wilderness. But he refused 
I want you to turn with me in Exodus in the 23rd chapter. We're going to raise um, some questions concerning God's leadership and see if we still believe this. I've got a text, but I want to read verse 1 first. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thy hand with the wicked to, to be an unrighteous witness, and don't follow a multitude to do evil. Now that put us in the minority right there, didn't it? I've heard so much about minority groups. I've been a member of one ever since I got saved. There is discrimination. And there is amendment number one protection for everybody except the church today. Old bloody-handed murderer, newspaper, anything else can hold up amendment number one and said, now let us alone. Boy, they just walk off and leave them. Talk about discrimination. That discrimination has become an abomination. Now then, look with me at verse 8, and this is my text. And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. Now verse 20. And you talk about a sweet and blessed promise. You see the Lord, and I say this reverently before him because I know he's surely listening and recording the message. He not only tells me what to do and where to go, but he sweetly obligated himself to escort me till I get there. He said in verse 20, 23, 20, Behold, give me attention please, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. You say, is that heaven? No, that's down here. God's prepared a place for me down here. And he said, I'm going to not take any chances on you getting there. I'm going to send an angel before to bring you to the place which I've prepared. Now, when we're saved, we're offered safe convoy to the place where the Lord wants to use us. And then he said something else. Verse 22, But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, and do all that I speak, then I'll be an enemy unto thine enemies. That's good, isn't it? An adversary unto thine adversaries. God says, they're not just your enemies, they're mine too. I'll get around to taking care of them one of these days, and he will. Now then, let me give you the illustration. Come to the message. The children of Israel got into the wilderness, and their daily diet was murmuring. They lived in the city of criticism. Their favorite pastime was frowning at God and Moses. And they said, uh, Moses, I know we were getting crowded in Egypt, but there wasn't enough room for cemeteries to bury us. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you brought us out here to die. You know there's no supermarket out here. We have no leeks and garlic. We have nothing to eat out here. You know that. And here you've got us all out here now and you've trapped us and we're going to starve to death. And the Lord said, Moses, tell them it's coming to rain and I'm going to rain manna down on them. And he did. The next chapter, they came to him and said, all right, we've had it. 
and so have you. You're a punk leader. We're tired of following you in the wilderness. Do you realize that we're out of water? And Moses run over to the Lord, got out in his prayer place and said, Lord, they'd be ready to stone me. I'm just about to be the victim of stoning party. And he said two things. He said, go on and take your rod. And he took the rod and hit a rock, didn't he? And that rock cracked open the smitten rock and water gushed out. And the people stared at the water, drank the water, enjoyed the water. But you know, when he fed them, he told them something. He said, now, folks, he said, we're going to have manna, but it's only coming six days. That's all. It will not come but six days. Back in the days when the Saturday was the Sabbath, they said it's going to come Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Friday the Lord will give enough for a couple of days. But he told them, he said, now you're not going to hoard it. I mean, don't. Uh, they had no deep freeze to put it in. They had no refrigeration. But the people, because of a lack of faith, they said, we better start us a saving department. We're going to put a little up. These other people may be hungry, but we've got a secret compartment. And we're going to get us some extra manna. And that's just good business, they said. And so they got the manna, eased it around to their favorite savings department, put it in. And Moses came walking by and said, hmm, there's a strange smell around your quarters. They said, well, we put up a little extra manna, and it stinks. Now, that's just what the Bible said. There's a smell in the savings department. I just thought coming over here a while ago, what would America do, reckon what she would do, if overnight they took all the cigarettes away, they took all the dope away. They took all the aspirins and anison tablets and tranquilizers and rest pills and sleeping tablets. They took them all away. And along with it, they took the idiot box. You'd say, what would you do? I'd head for old Mexico and get me a cave as deep as I could get in until the maniacs killed each other out and I'd come back. Why, this whole country would go crazy. Now, let me add one to it. What if in the morning you heard on the news that the Social Security Department is now bankrupt? The government has not one penny that will operate anymore. We're sunk. You remember when France went bankrupt? They were bodies floating in every river. Why, in New York, people would be written rooms on the 10th to 15th floor in order to jump out at. You know why? They're married to their manna, and it's going to begin to stink one of these days. Why, he said, life consists not in the abundance of things 
one may possess. Paul never wrote a check in his life. Jesus never had a bank account in his life. And yet Paul said, I have all and abound. I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Oh, the lessons that God would teach us. Why, you remember the great old um, General Hogg? At that time, his men were pitching tents and his army. And he came by late in the evening. They were driving stakes and he said, Don't drive those stakes too deep. We're pulling out of here in the morning. Did you get it? The average man is driving all the stakes he's got right here. Driving them deep. We're pulling out of here in the morning. We're not here to stay. Abraham said, we have no continuing city here, but we seek one to come. Now then, the thing that inspired the message was what I said this morning, and I don't know why I had a vague uh, idea that I might have, uh, and sometimes I get Elisha and Elijah mixed up, but Elisha, Elisha was the man, and he had a servant named Gehazi, and Naaman uh, came down into Israel and told the government and the king, I brought you $440,000 if you'll heal my leprosy. And the king got mad and said, you don't think I'm God? What are you trying to do? Pick a fight. Get out of here. And so then Elisha said, all right, tell him to come on down here. And so Elisha told him to go dip seven times in the river Jordan, and he got mad, but finally wound up doing that. And then, as would be normal, the man had $440,000. He came up to the preacher, and he said, Preacher, if you'll hold out your hand, I'm ready to pay my bill. And the Bible says Elisha refused. He said, you don't pay me for what God did. I don't want your tax money. I don't want your government money. And he refused. But that's not the end of the story. Elisha just thanked the Lord that the man had been healed. And the man started off down the road. And remember, he had many, many new suits along with the money. And Gehazi, oh, the Gehazis. Gehazi, I think, said, you know, Elisha, is a great man, but he's so foolish. Man, here we are, practically no clothes, empty suitcase, and he didn't take one new, and didn't even remember me to let me get a new suit. If he don't want one, at least I could have had two or three and a pocket full of money. My convictions are just not like his. I think Elisha, is just sort of foolish at times. After all, we got to have something to live on. Well, that's some rationalizing. And so Gehazi, he tears off down the road, and Naaman, Captain Naaman, sees him coming full steam ahead and hollers to stop the carriage or the horses and said, hey, wait a minute. Here comes that servant that told me to go jump in the river. Something's wrong. He said to Gehazi, is all well? Oh, I imagine, you know, Naaman just freshly healed. I imagine he feared and said, I sure hope he hadn't come to get his healing back. Now, when God does it, it's permanent. I know that whatsoever the Lord doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nothing taken from the Lord doeth that men may fear. And the servant said, oh, no, everything's just fine. But, now watch it. We've had company. 
You see, the dear preacher, Brother Elisha, he has preachers that come to see him, and some of his preacher boys came. And they are running a little short on clothes. And if you would, we'd like to get some clothes for them. Oh, why, he said, I guess you will load it up. Help yourself. Listen, I tried to give it to him. Oh, well, he's a little particular about who he takes money from. And, but I'm not. I'll take some. And so I'll go back, and uh, I'm going to look after somebody. He was looking after Gehazi. You see, he's putting himself in the same compromising position that Ananias and Sapphira put themselves in. And so he got his provisions, eased back to the side door where we could get and sort of laid them away, sort of his layaway plan, put all of his stuff up. <clears throat> he said, you know, that's real wisdom. After all, they don't need them. After all, look what he got. And Elisha said, uh, as Gehazi came in, tongue in cheek, and Elisha said, Gehazi, where you been? He said, no weather. Brother, you fixing the weather? He said, you haven't been in the way? He said, no. Gehazi, how long is it going to take you to learn that I've got a radar screen? And I saw you take off after that carriage and after Naaman, and I saw exactly know what you got and where you put it. Now then, your savings department is stinking, and you're going to get not only what Naaman had in money and clothes, you're going to get his leprosy. And Gehazi, lived and died a leper. You know why? His savings department went bad on him. The American people and the churches and the people in this country, we're going to come to the place one of these days when we realize that we've been blowing soap bubbles. You talk about a cracking down and a judgment day rolling around, we're going to realize that we've missed the boat. Now then, let me give you another man. His name was Joseph. He came from a fine home, but his brothers were jealous, and they almost killed him, put him in a pit, sold him. He wound up the prime minister. He got trapped, or at least she tried to trap him, Potiphar's wife. He wound up in a jailhouse in Egypt, and it seemed like justice would never come. And yet, because of his wisdom, because of his faithfulness, because of his work, he became the prime minister. And uh, for seven plentiful years, he stored away the grain and uh, fed all the universe. People came from everywhere, including his brothers and his old dad. But the Bible said he, when he was offered the opportunity to try to satisfy the deadly, damnable lust of a wicked woman, the Bible said he stretched himself and said, I refuse. You don't have anything, sister, that will satisfy Joseph. And I don't have anything that'll satisfy you when it's not right. And I'm getting out of here. And she grabbed his coat and he ran with his character. He refused. Boys, all of us, God never has obligated himself to use anybody that didn't have enough character to refuse the lusts of the world. Oh, uh, listen, have you ever thought about Potiphar, I know there's no other chapter about it, but maybe his wife said one day, 
when they began to eat the groceries that faithful Joseph had put up for them. Do you reckon maybe that wicked woman ever called her husband in and said, Honey, I'd like to tell you something. I lied on the man that's now prime minister. You were right about him. And he was honest and upright and pure. And he refused to succumb to my sinful offer. I'll give you one other. You remember the man, and I suppose out of all the chapters in the Bible, this would appeal to me and some of the rest of you, a farmer. And I learned before I'd been preaching very long that farmers could be about as selfish as anybody else. I remember, Brother Johnny, when they talk about giving the Lord the top crop. That's the last little growing right in the top of the stalk. They said, well, if we make a top crop, we'll give that to the church. Boy, they were already after the bottom crop for them and the first fruits for them. And they said, we'll give the Lord the top crop. There was a farmer. The Bible said he was rich. He had uh, much goods, and he made a bumper crop. And he went in after walking across his rolling fields of grain and whatever he had planted and said, that's a tremendous crop. Talk about increase. He looked toward his old barns and said, you'll be embarrassed. You'll be embarrassed. But he said, you know what I better do? I will tear down. And 11 times he used I and my. He desperately needed an optometrist to take care of his eye trouble. I, this will I do. I will tear down my barns and I. And he said, I'll just get in. And he took his drawing pencil and I imagine his paper and began to draw and said, isn't that going to be something? But he didn't remember the widow, the orphans, nobody else. And the Bible said just two words, a conjunction plus God ruined every plan he had. His drawing board fell on the floor. And the Bible said, but God said, thou fool. Now I want you to notice what preparations he had not made. His savings department began to smell in the nostrils of a holy God. And he said, when this man said, Saul, thou hast much goods laid up for many days. Eat, drink, be merry. And God came in and said, you're a fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then he raises the question, whose shall these goods be? You've made no provision. You've written no will. You've been drawing Burns plans when you ought to have been drawing up a will because tonight you're done for. Your savings department will be separated from you forever tonight. Oh, listen. You've heard me say, haven't you? And we get to watch a lot of funeral processions gather in but I've got my first you haul it to see along behind the hearse. There never has been a semi-truck pull up or a you haul it behind the hearse saying this man sure got a little. There's never been a banker that came out with all the deposits from the strong box 
all of his stocks and bonds to lay in the casket and say, he'll need those for he's going. Oh, no, dear. If he's right with God, he won't need that kind of stuff when he gets to heaven. If he's not, they'd burn when he enters his home. You better watch your savings department. Today's the day of salvation, and now's the time. Christians, sometimes people feel sorry. I get letters of sympathy. Our savings department is now smelling in this country. The rules, the regulations, the un-American, un-Christian, unscriptural things that are being done in the name of the government. Listen, I like to read, and I read again yesterday. Amendment number one says that no law and no legislation can be passed that would hinder my freedom and the freedom and separation of church and state. That's the reason I'd say they've never passed a law that would have anything to do with the church. They can't. There's no way for them to do it. One of my boys came, the servicemen came this morning and gave me something. Listen to this. No religion can long continue to maintain its purity when the church becomes the subservient vassal of the state. That was written by F. Adler in Creed and Deed in 1877. Next, religion may be the concern of a people, but it must never become a concern of the state. Written in 1936. Religion cannot sink lower than when somehow it is raised to a state religion. It becomes then an avowed mistress. It's a sad day, my brother, when the church begins to flirt with the state and then says, I do for life, and they get married. And she begins to play second fiddle to a godless state that has no respect. And it's a sad day when the state can come out to this church, any other church, and say, we'll set the standards for the future bride of Christ. Can you imagine Jesus in his intercessory office watching a bunch of little silly women with their britches on walking through this auditorium and with an armload of rules and regulations and newly rewritten and upgraded books saying, we've got your updated standards for your church and all of its attendant ministries. Brother, it's a wonder Jesus wouldn't take a club and beat their brains out. I've never been married, and here you are. I've waited 2,000 years for my bride to be finished and to come home and to have our wedding honeymoon. And you down there trying to tell my bride how she's supposed to dress and how she's supposed to live, setting standards for my bride. That's the Holy Spirit's business. Amen. Oh, how sad it is, dear friend. But when there's no church, that's subject to Christ. There'll be no state that'll be subject to God. And therefore, she'll be a slave of sin, the flesh, and the devil. 